Chapter Ten, Part One of Laddie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Laddie by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Ten, Part One. Laddie takes the plunge. This is the state of man. Today he puts forth the tender leaves of hopes. Tomorrow blossoms, and bears his blushing honors thick upon him. The third day comes a frost, a killing frost, and when he thinks, good easy man. Full, surely, his greatness is a ripening, nips his root, and then he falls, as I do. Watch me take the plunge, said Laddie. Mad frenzy fires him now, quoted Leon. It was Sunday after dinner. We had been to church and Sunday school in the forenoon, and we had a houseful of company for dinner. All of them remained to spend the afternoon, because in our home it was perfectly lovely. We had a big dinner with everything good to start on, and then we talked and visited and told all the news. The women exchanged new recipes for cooking, advised each other about how to get more work done with less worry, to doctor their sick folks, and to make their dresses. At last, when everything was talked over, and there began to be a quiet time, father would reach across the table, pick up a paper, and read all the interesting things that had happened in the country during the past week. The jokes, too, and they made people think of funny stories to tell, and we just laughed. In the agriculturist, there were new ways to farm easier, to make land bear more crops. So he divided that with the neighbors. Also, how to make gardens and prune trees. Before he finished, he always managed to work in a lot about being honest, kind, and loving God. He and mother felt so good over Leon, and by this time, They were beginning to see that they were mighty glad about the money too. It wouldn't have been so easy to work and earn and pay back all that for our school, roads, and the church. And every day you could see plainer how happy they felt that they didn't have to do it. Because they were so glad about these things, they invited everyone they met that day. But we knew Saturday mother felt that probably she would ask a crowd, from the chickens, pie, and cake she got ready. When the reading part was over, and the women were beginning to look at the clock, and you knew they felt they should go home and didn't want to, Laddie arose and said that, and Leon piped up like he always does and made everyone laugh. Of course they looked at Laddie, and no one knew what he meant. So all the women and a few of the men asked him. Watch me, I said, laughed Laddie as he left the room. Soon Mrs. Dover, sitting beside the front window, cried. Here he is at the gate. He was on his horse, but he hitched it and went around the house and up the back way. Before long, the stair door of the sitting room opened, and there he stood. We stared at him. Of course, he was bathed and in clean clothing to start with, but he had washed and brushed some more until he shone. His cheeks were as smooth and as clear pink as any girl's, his eyes blue gray and big, with long lashes and heavy brows. His hair was bright brown and wavy. And he was so big and broad. He never had been sick a day in his life, and he didn't look as if he ever would be. And clothes do make a difference. He would have had exactly the same hair, face, and body, wearing a hickory shirt and denim trousers. But he wouldn't have looked as he did in the clothes he wore at college, when it was Sunday there, or he was invited to a party at the president's. I don't see how any man could possibly be handsomer or look finer. His shirt, collar, and cuffs were snow white, like everything had to be before mother got through with it. His big loose tie almost reached his shoulders, 
and our men could do a thing no other man in the neighborhood did. They could appear easier in the finest suit they could put on than in their working clothes. Mother used to say one thing she dreaded about Sunday was the evident tortures of the poor men squirming in boots she knew pinched them, coats too tight and collars too high. She said they acted like half-broken colts fretting over restriction. Always she said to father and the boys when they went to buy their new clothes, Now don't join the harness fighters. Get your clothing big enough to set your bodies with comfort and ease. I suppose those other men would have looked like ours if their mothers had told them. You can always see that a man needs a woman to help him out awful bad. Of course Laddie knew he was handsome. He had to know all of them were looking at him curiously. But he stood there, buttoning his glove and laughing to himself, until Sarah Hood asked, Now what are you up to? He took a step toward her, ran one hand under her lantern-jawed chin, pulled her head against his side, and turned up her face. Sarah, he said, remember the day we spoiled the washing? Everyone laughed. They had made jokes about it until our friends knew what they meant. What are you going to spoil now? asked Sarah. The Egyptians, the furriners. I'm going right after them. Well, you could be in better business, said Sarah Hood sharply. Laddie laughed and squeezed her chin and hugged her head against him. Listen to that now, he cried, my best friend going back on me. Sarah, I thought you, of all people, would wish me luck. I do, she said instantly, and that's the very reason I don't want you mixed up with that mysterious, offish, stuck-up mess. Bless your dear heart, said Laddie, giving her a harder squeeze than ever. You got that all wrong, Sarah. You'll live to see the day, very shortly, when you'll change every word of it. I haven't done anything but get surer about it every day for two years, anyway, said Sarah Hood. Exactly, said Laddie, but wait until I have taken the plunge. Let me tell you how the Pryor family strikes me. I think he is a high-tempered, domineering man, proud as Lucifer. For some cause, just or not, he is ruining his life, and that of his family, because he so firmly believes it just. He is hiding here from his home country, his relatives, and friends. I think she is, barring you and mother, the handsomest woman of her age I ever saw. All of them laughed, because Sarah Hood was nearly as homely as a woman could grow, and maybe other people didn't find our mother so lovely as we thought her. I once heard one of her best friends say that she was distinctly plain. I didn't see how she could, but she said that. And the most pitiful, Laddie went on. Sarah, what do you suppose sends a frail little woman pacing the yard and up and down the road, sometimes in storm and rain, gripping both hands over her heart? I suppose it's some shameful thing I don't want you mixed up with, said Sarah Hood promptly, and people just shouted. Sarah, said Laddie, I've seen her closely, watched her move, and studied her expression. There's not one grain of possibility that you, or Mother, or Mrs. Fall, or any woman here, could be any closer connected with shame. Shame there is, said Laddie, and what a word! How it stings, burns, withers, and causes heart trouble and hiding. But shame in connection with that woman, more than shame thrust upon her, which might come to any of us, at any time. Shame that is her error, in the life of a woman having a face like hers. Sarah, I am ashamed of you. Your only excuse is that you haven't persisted as I have until you got to see for yourself. 
I am not much on persistence in the face of a locked door, a cast-iron man with a big cane, and two raving bulldogs,' said Mrs. Hood. "'Wait, young man, just wait until he sets them on you.' Laddie's head went back, and how he laughed. "'Hist, a word with you, Sarah,' he said. "'Member I have sort of a knack with animals. I never have yet failed with one I undertook to win.' Now those bulldogs of Priors are as mild as kittens, with a man who knows the right word. Reason I know, Sarah. I've said the word to them, separately and collectively, and it worked. There is a contrast, Sarah, between what I say and do to those dogs, and the kicks and curses they get from their owner. I'll wager you two to one that if you can get Mr. Pryor to go into a sicking contest with me, I can have his own dogs at his throat, when he can't make them do more than to lick my hands." They laughed as if that were funny. "'Well, I didn't know about this,' said Sarah. "'How long have you lived at Pryor's?' You couldn't have heard what Laddie said if he'd spoken, so he waited until he could be heard, and it never worried him a speck. He only stood and laughed, too. Then, long enough, he said, to know that all of us are making a big and cruel mistake in taking them at their word and leaving them penned up there weltering in misery.' What we should do is to go over there, one at a time, or in a body, and batter at the door of their hearts, until we break down the wall of pride they have built around them, ease their pain, and bring them with us socially, if they are going to live among us. You people who talk loudly and often about loving God, and doing unto others, should have gone long ago, for Jesus' sake. I'm going for the sake of a girl, with a face as sweet, and a heart as pure, as any accepted angel at the foot of the throne." "'Mother, I want a cup of peach jelly, and some of that exceptionally fine cake you served at dinner, to take to our sick neighbor.' Mother left the room. "'Father, I want permission to cut and carry a generous chestnut branch, bird and full-fruited to the young woman. There is none save ours in this part of the country, and she may never have seen any, and be interested. And I want that article about foot disease in horses for Mr. Pryor. I'll bring it back when he finishes.' Father folded the paper and handed it to Laddie, who slipped it in his pocket. "'Take the finest branch you can select,' Father said, and I almost fell over. He had carried those trees from Ohio before I had been born, and Mother said for years he wrapped them in her shawl in winter and held an umbrella over them in summer, and Father always went red and grinned when she told it. He was wild about trees and bushes, so he made up his mind he'd have chestnuts.' He planted them one place, and if they didn't like it, he dug them up and set them another where he thought they could have what they needed, and hadn't got the last place. Finally he put them, on the fourth move, on a little sandy ridge across the road from the woodyard, and that was the spot. They shot up, branched, spread, and one was a male, and two were females. So the pollen flew, the burrs filled right, and we had a bag of chestnuts to send each child away from home every Christmas. The brown leaves and burrs were so lovely, Mother cut one of the finest branches she could select, and hung it above the steel engraving of Lincoln freeing the slaves in the boys' room, and nothing in the house was looked at oftener, or thought prettier. That must have been what was in the back of Laddie's head when he wanted a branch for the princess. Mother came in with the cake and jelly in a little fancy basket, and Laddie said, "'Thank you. Now everyone wish me luck.' I'm going to ride to Pryor's, knock at the door, and present these offerings with my compliments. 
if I'm invited in, I'm going to make the effort of my life at driving the entering wedge toward social intercourse between priors and their neighbors. If I'm not, I'll be back in thirty minutes and tell you what happened to me. If they refuse my gifts, you shall have the jelly, Sarah. I'll give Mrs. Fall the olive branch, bring back the paper, and eat the cake to console my wounded spirits. Of course, everyone laughed. They couldn't help it. I watched father, and he laughed hardest of the men. But mother was more stiff-lipped about it. She couldn't help a little, though. And I noticed some of those women acted as if they had lost something. Maybe it was a chance to gossip about Laddie, for he hadn't left them a thing to guess at. And mother says the reason gossip is so dreadful is because it is always guesswork. Well, that was all fair and plain. He had told those people, our very best friends, what he thought about everything, the way they acted included. He was carrying something to each member of the prior family, and he'd left a way to return joking and unashamed if they wouldn't let him in. He had fixed things, so no one had anything to guess at. And it would look much worse for the priors than it would for him if he did come back. I wondered if he had been born that smart, or if he learned it in college. If he did, no wonder Leon was bound to go. Come to think of it, though, mother said Laddie was always like that. She said he never bit her when he nursed. He never mauled her as if she couldn't be hurt when he was little. He never tore his clothes and made extra work as he grew. And never in his life gave her an hour's uneasiness. But I guess she couldn't have said that about uneasiness lately, for she couldn't keep from looking troubled as all of us followed to the gate to see him start. How they joked and tried to tease him. But they couldn't get a breath ahead. He shot back answers as fast as they could ask questions, while he cut the branch and untied the horse. He gave the limb and basket to mother to hold, kissed her goodbye, and me too, before he mounted. With my arms around his neck, I never missed a chance to try to squeeze into him how I loved him. I whispered, Laddie, is it a secret any more? He threw back his head and laughed the happiest. Not the ghost of a secret, he said, but you let me do the talking until I tell you. Then he went on right out loud. I'm riding up the road, waving the banner of peace. If I suffer repulse, the same thing has happened to better men before, so I'll get a different banner and try again. Laddie mounted, swept a circle in the road, dropped Floss on her knees in a bow, and waved the branch. Leon began to sing at the top of his voice. Nothing but leaves, nothing but leaves, while Laddie went flashing up the road. The woman went back to the house. The men stood around the gate, watched him from sight, talked about his horse, how he rode, and made wagers that he'd get shut out, like everyone did. But they said if that happened, he wouldn't come back. Father was annoyed. You heard Laddie say he'd return immediately if they wouldn't let him in, he said. He's a man of his word. He will either enter or come home at once. It was pitch dark, and we had supper before some of them left. They never stayed so late. After we came from church, father read the chapter, and we were ready for bed. Still, Laddie hadn't come back. And father liked it. He just plain liked it. He chuckled behind the advocate until you could see it shake. But mother had very little to say, and her lips closed tight. At bedtime, he said to mother, Well, they don't seem in a hurry about sending the boy back. Did you really think he would be sent back? asked mother. Not ordinarily, said father. No, if he had no brain, no wit, no culture, on an animal basis, 
A woman would look twice before she'd send him away. But with such fanatics as Pryor's, one can't always tell what will happen. In a case like this, one can be reasonably certain, said Mother. You don't know what social position they occupied at home. Their earmarks are all good. We've no such notions here as they have. Thank God for so much, at any rate, said Mother. How old England would rise up and exult if she had a man in line with Laddie's body, blood and brain, to set on her throne. This talk about class and social position makes me sick. Men are men, and Laddie is as much above the customary timber found in kings and princes, physically and mentally, as the sky is above the earth. Talk me no talk about class. If I catch it coming from any of mine, save you, I will beat it out of them. He has admitted he's in love with a girl. The real question is, whether she's fit to be his wife. I should say she appears so, said father. Drat appearances, cried mother, when it's a question of lifetime misery and the sole salvation of my son. If things go wrong, I've no time for appearances. I want to know. He might have known he would make her angry when he laughed. She punched the pillow and wouldn't say another word. So I went to sleep and didn't miss anything that time. Next morning at breakfast, Laddie was beaming, and father hardly waited to ask the blessing before he inquired, Well, how did you make it, son? Laddie laughed and answered, Altogether, it might have been much worse. That was all he would say until Miss Amelia started to school. Then he took me on his lap and talked as he buttoned my coat. Thomas met me at the gate, he said, and held my horse while I went to the door. One of their women opened it, and I inquired for Mr. Pryor. She said he was in the field looking at the horses, so I asked for Miss Pryor. She came in a minute, so I gave her the branch, told her about it, and offered the jelly and cake for her mother. The princess invited me to enter. I told her I couldn't without her father's permission, so I went to the field to see him. The dogs were with him, and he had the surprise of his life when his man-eaters rolled at my feet and licked my hands. "'What did he say?' chuckled father. "'told Thomas they'd been overfed "'and didn't amount to a brass farthing "'to take them to the woods and shoot them. "'Thomas said he'd see to it "'the very first thing in the morning, "'and then Mr. Pryor told him "'he would shoot him if he did. "'Charming man to work for,' said Mother. "'Then I told him I'd been at the house "'to carry a little gift to his wife and daughter "'and to inquire if I might visit an hour, "'and as he was not there, "'I had come to the field to ask him. "'Then I looked him in the eye and said, "'May I?' "'I'll warrant the woman asked you to come in,' he said. "'Miss Pryor was so kind,' I answered. "'But I enter no man's house without his permission. "'May I talk with your daughter an hour, "'and your wife, if she cares to see me?' "'It makes no earthly difference to me,' he said, "'which was not gracious, but might have been worse. "'So I thanked him, and went back to the house. "'When I knocked the second time, the princess came, "'and I told her the word was that it made no difference to her father "'if I came in.' So she opened the door widely, took my hat, and offered me a seat. Then she went to the next room and said, "'Mother, father has given Mr. Stanton permission to pay us a call. Do you feel able to meet him?' She came at once, offering her hand and saying, "'I have already met Mr. Stanton so often, really, we should have the privilege of speaking.' "'What did she mean by that?' asked mother. "'She meant that I have haunted the road passing their place for two years.' and she'd seen me so frequently that she came to recognize me. Umph, said Mother. 
Laddie, tell on, I begged. Well, I sharpened all the wits I had and went to work. I never tried so hard in my life to be entertaining. Of course, I had to feel my way. I'd no idea what would interest a delicate, high-bred lady. Mother sniffed again. So I had to search and probe, and go by guess, until I saw a shade of interest. Then I worked in more of the same. It was easy enough to talk to the princess. All young folks have a lot in common. We could get along on fifty topics. It was different with the housebound mother. I did my best, and after a while Mr. Pryor came in. I asked him if any of his horses had been attacked with the trouble some of the neighbors were having, and told him what it was. He had the grace to thank me. He said he would tell Thomas not to tie his horse at the public hitching rack when he went to town. And once he got started, he was wild to talk with a man, and I'd no chance to say a word to the woman. He was interested in our colleges, state, and national laws, in land development, and everything that all live men are. When a maid announced dinner, I apologized for having stayed so long, and excused myself, because I had been so interested. But Mrs. Pryor merely said, I'm waiting to be offered your arm. Well, you should have seen me drop my hat and step up. I did my best, and while I talked to him a little, I made it most to the woman. Anyone could see they were starved for company, so I took the job of entertaining them. I told some college jokes, funny things that had happened in the neighborhood, and everything of interest I could think up. I know we were at the table for two hours with things coming and going on silver platters. Mother sat straight suddenly. Just what did they have to eat, and how did they serve it? she asked. Couldn't tell you if I were to be shot for it, Mummy, said Laddie. Forgive me. Next time I'll take notes for you. This first plunge, I had to use all my brains, not to be a bore to them, and to handle food and cutlery as the woman did. It's quite a process, but as they were served first, I could do right by waiting. I never was where things were done quite so elaborately before. And they didn't know they would have company until you went to the table? Well, they must have thought likely. There was a place for me. Umph, said Mother. Fine idea. Then anyone who drops in can be served, and see that they are not a mite of trouble. Candace, always an extra place after this. Father just shouted. I thought you'd get something out of it, he said. Happy to have justified your faith, replied Mother calmly. Go on, son. That's all, said Laddie. We left the table and talked an hour more. The woman asked me to come again. He didn't say anything on that subject. But when he ordered my horse, he asked the princess if she would enjoy a little exercise, and she said she would, so he told Thomas to bring their horses, and we rode around the section, the princess and I ahead, Mr. Pryor following. Where the road was good and the light fine enough that there was no danger of laming a horse, we dropped back, one on either side of him, so we could talk. Mrs. Pryor ate the cake and said it was fine, and the conserve, as she called it, delicious as she ever had tasted. She said all our fruits here had much more flavor than at home. She thought it was the drier climate and more sunshine. She sent her grateful thanks, and she wants your recipe before next preserving time. Mother just beamed. My, but she did love to have the things she cooked bragged on. Possibly she'd like my strawberries, she said. There isn't a doubt about it, said Laddie. I've yet to see the first person who doesn't. Is that all? asked Mother. I can think of nothing more at this minute, answered Laddie. If anything comes to my mind later, I won't forget to tell you. Oh, yes, there was one thing. 
You couldn't keep Mr. Pryor from talking about Leon. He must have taken a great fancy to him. He talked until he worried the princess, and she tried to keep him away from the subject, but his mind seemed to run on it constantly. When we were riding, she talked quite as much as he, and it will hustle us to think what the little scamp did, any bigger than they do. Of course, father, you understood the price Mr. Pryor made on one of his very finest colts was a joke. There's a strain of Arab in the father. He showed me the record, and the mother is bluegrass. There you get gentleness and endurance, combined with speed and nerve. I'd trade floss for that colt as it stands today. There's nothing better on earth in the way of horse. His offer is practically giving it away. I know, with the records to prove its pedigree, what that colt would bring him in any city market. I don't like it, said Mother. I want Leon to have a horse, but a boy in a first experience, and reckless as he is, doesn't need a horse like that, for one thing. And what is more important, I refuse to be put under any obligations to Pryor's. That's the reason Mr. Pryor asked anything at all for the horse. It is my opinion that he would be greatly pleased to give it to Leon, if he could do what he liked. Well, that's precisely the thing he can't do in this family, said Mother sternly. What do you think, father? asked Laddie. I think amen to that proposition, said father, but I would have to take time to thresh it out completely. It appeals to me that Leon is old enough to recognize the value of the animal, and that the care of it would develop and strengthen his character. It would be a responsibility that would steady him. You could teach him to tend and break it. Break it! cried Laddie. Break it! Why, father, he's riding it bareback all over the prior meadow now, and jumping it over logs. Whenever he leaves, it follows him to the fence, and the princess says almost any hour of the day you look out, you can see it pacing up and down, watching this way, and whinnying for him to come. And your best judgment is? Laddie laughed as he tied my hood strings. Well, I don't feel about the priors as the rest of you do, he said. If the money isn't claimed inside the time you specified, I would let Leon and Mr. Pryor make their own bargain. The boy won't know for years that it is practically a gift, and it would please Mr. Pryor immensely. Now run, or you'll be late. I had to go, so I didn't know how they settled it. But if they wouldn't let Leon have that horse, it was downright mean. What if we were under obligations to Mr. Pryor? We were to Sarah Hood, and half the people we knew— and what was more, we liked to be. When I came from school that night, father had been to town. He had an axe, and was opening a big crate, containing two of the largest, bluest geese you ever saw. Laddie said being boxed that way, and seeing them so close, made them look so big. Really, they were no finer than Pryor's, where he had got the address of the place that sold them. Mother was so pleased, she said she had needed a new strain, for a long time, to improve her feathers— now she would have pillows worth while in a few years. They put them in the barn where our geese stayed overnight. And how they did scream. That is, one of them did. The other acted queerly, and father said to Laddie that he was afraid the trip was hard on it. Laddie said it might have been hurt, and mother was worried too. Before she had them an hour, she had sold all our ganders, spring had come, she had saved the blue goose eggs, set them under a hen, raised the goslings with the little chickens, never lost one, picked them, and made a new pair of pillows, too fine for anyone less important than a bishop, or a judge, or Dr. Fenner to sleep on. Then she began saving for a feather bed. And still the goose didn't act as spry, or feel as good as the gander. 
He stuck up his head, screamed, spread his wings, and waved them. And the butts looked so big and hard, I was not right certain whether it would be safe to tease him or not. The first person who came to see them was Sarah Hood, and she left with the promise of a pair as soon as mother could raise them. Father said the only reason mother didn't divide her hair with Sarah Hood was because it was fast, and she couldn't. Mother said, gracious goodness, she'd be glad to get rid of some of it if she could, and of course Sarah should have first chance at it. Hadn't she kept her overnight so she could see her new home when she was rested, and didn't she come with her and help her get settled? And had she ever failed when we had a baby, or sickness, or trouble, or thrashers, or a party? Of course she'd gladly divide, even the hair of her head, with Sarah Hood. And father said, yes, he guessed she would. And come to think of it, he'd just as soon spare Sarah part of his. And then they both laughed, when it was nothing so very funny that I could see. End of chapter 10, part 1